about the topic of predestination and free will. Of the election of God versus man's responsibility to choose. It is an old question that has been around for thousands of years without being solved. And men who chew too long on the French pastry end up with what my grandson calls tummy trouble. Because there is no adequate answer to the dilemma. I'm going to do some quotes this morning, and I suppose we're on this ground of the predestination of God and the free will of man because of Jesus' statement last week that we'll look at in a few minutes where he says, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you. Now when you look at the implications to let you know where the tummy trouble comes from, if God is sovereign, which we believe he is, has he predetermined all events? Has he already decided from eternity past, not only my sermon this morning, but the very words that I speak to you right now? There is a dog running around the attic. There is a squirrel running in a tree, grabbing the nuts off the tree. There are seagulls. I'm making this up in my mind. Did God know? Did he know that I was going to make these? In the very words that I, from all eternity past, did he? If he is sovereign and knows all things, what place do I have walking across a parking lot choosing to pick up a pebble or choosing to let the pebble go? God know it all. Did he? Or do I free to randomly throw out nonsensical facts to you? Are we free to make the decisions and choices of our lives? If God is sovereign, then how can he hold us responsible for the decisions we make? If God chooses, as I'm going to quote to you John Calvin in a moment, to elect some to eternal damnation, then what right does God have to justly judge? With that said, let me read to you the, the very words of John Calvin himself. He writes this, God preordained for his own glory and the display of his attributes of mercy and justice a part of the human race without any merit on their own to eternal salvation and another part in just punishment of their sin to eternal damnation. Well, let's read the opposing side of John Ar James Arminius, who espoused a doctrine which some have run with, Arminianism versus Calvinism. James writes this, Predestination, therefore, as it regards the thing itself, is the degree, decree of the good pleasure of God in Christ, by which he resolved within himself from all eternity to justify and adopt and to endow with everlasting life to the praise of his glorious grace believers on whom he had decreed to bestow faith. I'm more comfortable with that statement than with John Calvin's. 
So what's, what's, what's the rub? What's, before I read you a couple more quotes, where's the tension? If you believe in the sovereignty of God and you begin a project, and the project doesn't go well, do you quit because you discern it isn't God's will? He's closed the doors, we say. Or do you press on believing that you have the freedom of choice to press on? Maybe this is a test from God to see if you'll battle through it. There are practical implications to this. If God has chosen those to salvation and chosen those to eternal damnation, as Calvin espouses, why share the gospel with anybody? He already knows. So what's the purpose? We become what some have called the frozen chosen. Or is it all our responsibility and in doing so, we take God off the throne of authority and put man in the center of his eternal destiny? By the way, as a side note, you know if you're in a Calvinistic church or an Armenianistic church by the length of their invitation. Think about it long enough. You'll get it. If, if a church does about 20 stanzas of just as I am, you're probably in an Armen Armenianistic church. If they do one simple quick verse and everybody goes home, you're probably in a Calvinistic church. A couple more quotes. One by Roger Olson, who is a professor at Baylor, who is, in his own words, a proud Armenianist. He writes this, If God is love, but intended Christ's atoning death to be the propitiation for only certain people, so that only they have a chance of being saved, then love has no intelligible meaning when referring to God. Good point. All Christians agree that God is love, but Christians in limited atonement, meaning only a certain amount will be saved based on God's choice of that, but believers in limited atonement must interpret God's love as something compatible with God unconditionally selecting some people to eternal torment in hell when he has saved some of them, because election to salvation and thus salvation itself is unconditional. I, I quote to you uh, Louis Meneld, who was a Frenchman, a socialist in the 1800s. There is a history the way Tolstoy imagined it as a slow, great, moving weather storm in which even czars and generals are just leaves upon the storm. And then there is a history the way Hollywood imagines it as a single-line story in which the right move by the czar or the wrong move by the general changes everything. Most of us, deep down, are probably Hollywood people. We like to invent what-if scenarios. What if X had never happened and what if Y had happened instead? Because we like to believe that individual decisions make a difference. That if we do X, then Y will happen. History might have been plunged forever down a different path. And since we are agents, free moral agents, we have an interest in the power of that agency. 
Hang in there. There's a few more quotes. I know these are long, but I want you to think deeply with me. We'll end up on some light notes, but I want you to think deeply of the implications of both sides of this matter. The last one is by Tertullius, who was an early church father in writing in a document called Against Martian. Martian was an early church heretic, and so this was a book against Martian's teachings. Tertullian writes this, I find then that man was by God constituted free, master of his own will and power, indicating the presence of God's image and likeness in him by nothing so well as by the constitution of his nature. This, his state was confirmed even by the very law which God then imposed upon him. For a law that would not be imposed upon him who did not have in his power to render obedience. In other words, why would God throw laws upon us, commands upon us, edicts upon us to obey if we have no power of choice to do so? Which we must have. He goes on to write, so that in the creature's subservient laws also you will find that he sets before man good and evil, life and death, so that the entire course of discipline is arranged in precepts by God's calling to men from sin, threatening, exhorting them, and so is on no other ground that man is free and with a will either for obedience or resistance. Are you well enough confused? How's your stomach right now? Theologians have grappled these issues for centuries. But the Bible is very clear on which side of these issues it falls. I will give you those sides. And if you want to light up the internet, just look on Google and ask this question. Everybody's got an opinion. One woman flatly rejects any sovereignty of God or any choice of God as heresy by Calvin simply by saying that whosoever will may freely come, completely ignoring all the points of Calvinism. But the Bible is very clear. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says, Even as he chose us before him, before the foundation of the world, he chose you and I, now, some theologians have run to the idea that God chose us on the basis of foreknowledge. There's even an early church father who has that position. In other words, God knew that we would choose Christ based on our decision to choose Christ, which he foreknow, he took that and chose us. That is to castrate the teaching of the election of God and to put man back in the center of the decision. Can't be. God chose because he chose because he chose. He chose. Ephesians 1.5 says this, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of not of my choice, but of His will. He chose according to His will to choose you. John 6, 46, 44 says, Jesus says, No man can come to me unless 
the Father draw him. And I will raise him up in the last day. You can't come till he draws. A couple more, Ephesians 1, 11 and 12 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the purpose of his will. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on therefore as God's chosen ones. We are chosen. But what about John 3.16? Whosoever will may come. What about the end of Revelation when the water of life is offered to humanity and and, and, and Jesus says, whosoever will may freely come. So which is the accurate position? Look at John chapter 15. We'll get to it. John chapter 15 for today's verses. Verse 16 of John chapter 15 says this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed, ordained you that you... Now, now some Bible teachers will say, well, if they're going to refute Calvinism and the sovereign choices of God, they will say that verse says the choice is that you might go forth and bear fruit. But the problem grammatically is there is a conjunction A and D, which separates the thoughts. This is in addition to his choice of you. So look at 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go. Now, I love this word that John writes here for appointed. The King James says ordained. The word means to set someone in a position of uprightness and passivity. It means to set someone in a position of uprightness, but in a passive, non-active position. But right after Jesus said that I have set you up, I have placed you in a passive position... But then he says that you should go. It's, it's confusing. I've set you, now go. I've set you in a passive position, now go. Rest in me. See where I have placed you. It is I who will work in you, now go. It's, the common, it's what we call active passivity as believers. We don't go to make it happen. We go because it's already happened in us. Do you see that? He's placed us passively in himself. Now rest in that, and in resting in that, go. Sit in Christ, and then in that sitting position, get active. See it? We're not the frozen chosen. We're the chosen who go. I have ordained you, I have appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Now, fruit is not the product of the branch. 
Fruit is the product of the vine. That's why you're told to be passive. Because the fruit will not come from you, it will come through you. That you might bear fruit, and that fruit should abide. The word in the Greek is to stay, not to fall off. My Christian life used to look like this, like a roller coaster at Hershey Park. Sometimes high, sometimes low, sometimes full of ripe fruit. Sometimes it's just raisins all over the place. Plump and juicy, dried up and dead. But as I rest in Him, I find that the Christian life isn't the roller coaster anymore that it was. It's a steady climb, resting passively in Him, allowing Him to act and work, waiting on Him, waiting on Him. And when He moves, I move. And when He stays, I stay. And the fruit produced from that is a continual fruit. It is always there. It is always fresh. There's no burnout because... How can you burn out when you've got your mouth to the very source of the fountain? How do you dry out like that? The fruit that comes from God never has a season. You know that? There aren't ups and downs. It's all the time bearing. When you get to glory land and those trees lined the streets, you remember what Revelation says? They bear their fruit. Everyone. Continual flow of fruit. It's the way it is when Christ is working in you. And you're resting in Him. Being passive and waiting on Him. We go and we watch God work. That's how it happens. So it goes on. That whatever you ask the Father in my name. You rest in Him. You walk in Him. He bears fruit. His spirit aligns with yours, yours aligns with him, and you're just asking what he already wants you to ask, and that just happens. Whatever you ask the Father in in my name, he may give it to you. And then he says, these things I command you. So that you, notice he didn't command them to love one another. Notice, so that. He doesn't give us a command to love other Christians. That's a hard deal. That's an impossible deal. Especially as mean as some Christians are. I'm sorry. Did I say that? He never commands us to love other. Notice he says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. When you're resting in Him, when you understand the position God has placed you sovereignly by His choice, and you through passivity rest in Him, and then you go in the power of His life, that's when the love for one another just, you can't help it. No matter what your brother or sister says, does against you. Well, let's, 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 let's do what theologians have been unable to do for thousands of years. Let's figure out the puzzle. Is God sovereign or do we have free will? You ready for the answer? What kind of church are you in? It's both. 
Someone asked Charles Spurgeon one time, how do you reconcile predestination with free will? He said, you don't have to reconcile friends. Good answer. They're friends. Is God the one who chooses? Absolutely. Does that violate my free will to choose? No. How does that, how can, I can't figure that out. That's why the Bible is a book of declaration of, of revelation facts. It is, a, it is a book of facts that are revealed to us from God Almighty that are true. If the Bible says whosoever will, it is whosoever will. He holds men responsible for all eternity for the decision they make in this life with Christ. You are responsible before God to make a decision for Christ. Are you predestined? Are you chosen as a lost person? I don't know. Walk through the door and you'll figure it out. Come to Christ. The door says free will. Walk through that door and receive Christ. And then when that door hits you in the behind, turn around and look at it. It will have said chosen. So just come. I had a man years ago battling this as a, as a lost man. He said, I don't know if I'm chosen. I don't know if I'm chosen. I said, well, bow your head with me right now and call out to Christ to save you. Let's figure it out. So he bowed his head. We prayed. And he looked up with tears in his eyes and said, you're chosen. It's not a mystery. It's not hard. Whosoever will may freely come. But in their coming, God has chosen. How do you put those two? You don't. Give you three things to help you get this down, all right? Number one. If an ant can explain the complexity of human life in human beings, if an ant with an ant's mind understands the complexity that God has created in a human being, then you and I will be able to understand fully predestination and free will. That ant will throw up in a few minutes if he keeps working on it. There is no answer because we don't have the capability to reconcile those two things. They just are in God's economy. If a man chooses, and I'm going to read an incredible quote in just a minute. If a man chooses to get in one of the two camps, either a Calvinist who says man has no free will, an Arminius or, that says, well, God chooses, but he does it based on my choice. If a man jumps to one of those two camps, this is what he is. He thinks he's Ant-Man. There is no such thing as Ant-Man. You can't figure it out. I told you we make this simple at the end. Three pictures to help you understand. Let me read to you an amazing, amazing quote. It's a little long. It's by a fellow named C.H. McIntosh, who was an author and Christian preacher in the 1800s, and he wrote a book called One-Sided Theology. McIntosh, and be patient. Put on your thinking caps. Listen through. This is long, but I want you to concentrate with me. He, blessed be his name, has not confined himself within the narrow limits of any school of doctrine. Talking about God. High, low, or moderate. He has revealed himself. 
In other words, is God a Calvinist? No. Is God an Armenian? No. He's greater than all those. He has told out the deep and precious secrets of his heart. He has unfolded his eternal counsels as to the church, to Israel, to the Gentiles, and to the wide creation. He has also, in his eternal degrees, chosen to reign upon us at this time with the blessings of his presence. That's not Macintosh. That was just in the moment. All right. All right, let's move on. Concentrate even though that's coming down, okay? Men might as well attempt to confine the ocean in buckets as their own formation, as to confine the vast range of divine revelation within the feeble enclosures of human systems of doctrines. Did you catch that? It cannot be done, and it ought not be attempted. It ought not be done, and it ought not to be attempted. He goes on to write, far better to set aside the systems of theology and the schools of divinity and come like a little child to the eternal fountain of the Scripture and there drink the living teachings of God's Spirit. Nothing is more damaging to the truth of God, more withering to the soul, and more subversive to all spiritual growth and progress than mere theology, whether it's high or whether it's low, Calvinistic or Arminianism. Both camps get real mean with each other. Both get real hateful at each other. They dry up studying and informing their positions against each other. Macintosh goes on and writes this. If I am taught to regard the five points as the faith of God's elect, I shall not think of looking beyond them. And then a most glorious field of heavenly truth is shut out from the vision of my soul. I am stunted, narrowed, one-sided. And not only so, but I am in danger of getting to that hard, dry state of soul that results from being occupied with mere points of doctrine instead of with Christ. This happens all the time. A discipline of the high school of doctrine will not hear of a worldwide gospel. Those in hyper-Calvinism will not hear of God loving the entire world. Of God's love to the world, of glad tidings to every creature under heaven. He has only gotten a gospel for the elect. And if you read these guys and listen to these guys and they talk about for the love... John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Well, what's the world to them? The elect. But it doesn't say to the elect. It says to the world. Be patient with a few more lines. He has only gotten a gospel for the elect. On the other hand, a disciple of the low or Armenian school will not hear of the eternal security of God's people. The Armenians will never figure it out that you're saved forever. Always worried about making their choices. Their salvation depends partly on Christ and partly on themselves. According to this system, the song of the redeemed shall be changed instead of worthy is the lamb to worthy are we. 
We may be saved today and lost tomorrow. And then he concludes with this thought. All this dishonors God and robs the Christian of true peace. 